Listener Production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, you probably should be by now, but giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. And that's the aim of this podcast. We're bringing you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. Today's guest is a bit of all three, an entrepreneur, an executive, and an expert in a very... I'll say different, but really super interesting field. Now, Alan Sokolitsky is the investment strategist and chief investment officer at Masterworks. Now, this is a business that is working in art as an investment. I've got to say, it's not something I know a lot about. So you're going to learn while I learn. We're both going to learn from the expert, and that is Alan. Alan, welcome to The Good Oil. Great. Thank you for having me. Mate, very, very kind of you. We're also doing this all the way from New York, I understand. So uh, uh, thank you for making yourself available in, in a reasonably uncomfortable time for you, but hopefully uh, an okay time. And I'm looking forward to getting some of your expertise. Mate, because most of us won't be familiar, I think we all think about art, we kind of get that it might be an investment and maybe it works and maybe there's something there. But I'm going to guess for the vast bulk of my listeners, this is a relatively new field. So maybe can you just start just by telling us what Masterworks itself is? Sure. Uh, one thing I would say by starting out is that uh, art is probably not just new for you or your listeners. It is new for the vast majority of investors. I feel better about that. Yep. I And I know this because I've spent my entire career in traditional <laughs> investment management. I know right. about all the other investments that everybody invests in and no point <laughs> did I come across art. So that's normal. There you go. Masterworks started in 2017 with the goal of making multi-million dollar blue chip works of art investable. And after several years of doing this, we we now have uh, more than 550,000 people that have signed up on our website to learn more about art investing. We have made about 150 paintings available for investment. Um, you know, we've, we've developed a track record. We've even sold a number of paintings. So the only thing that I guess is different about us relative to any other investment opportunity is simply that we're doing it for art. But everything else in terms of approaching it as an investment, that's basically like anybody else would approach whatever they're investing in. One of the things that I can't help but bring up, because this is a little bit of our secret sauce as a business, and coming from the investment world that I grew up in, I can't tell you how truly unique this is. So when we started the business, one of the exercises that we had to engage in was to basically buy up every catalog in existence with transaction data in the art market going back 70 years in time. So we put literally hundreds of thousands of transactions, millions of data points into a computer. And we did this, by the way, one by one. This was a huge exercise. We put all of that data into a computer. Now, the, the analogy that I like to use for um, you know, if there are any sort of investment professionals listening, when you're in the financial services industry and you need data on anything, you go to a Bloomberg terminal or other data, but all of that data is available for anything financial, but nothing like that ever existed for the art market. So we had to build it from scratch. So we've built this enormous investment database. We've built indices for different segments of the art market. So we understand how 
Oh, yeah, we, we understand how all art performs, how postmodern contemporary performs, impressionist and modern, old masters. We have, we have literally done all of the things that have been done in other asset classes, except for all those other asset classes, they were done a long time ago. And for art, we are doing them. We're doing them the first time for the art market. So we use all that data, you analyze the data, and you realize, okay, there are too many attractive characteristics of this story for it not to eventually take off with investors. And so right now, we're very much in this sort of educational phase, introducing investors, what does art investing mean? How do we pick paintings? Literally all of those things, that's a lot of what we're doing. So that takes me beautifully to my next question. Uh, I, I don't know how much of this you do or want to share publicly and how much you want to keep as that secret internal source. Um, but maybe just just tell me what how. Uh, someone would invest in art through Masterworks. What, what is it that you guys offer? How do you bring it together? Uh, how do I get a part of it? What, what, is, what does the structure look like for your investors? Uh, here's the process. We, we buy a painting outright, multi-million dollar painting. We buy it outright, buy the whole painting. We buy it with balance sheet capital. So we pay for the painting. We buy the whole thing. What we then do is we create an LLC. In other words, we form a company we put that painting into that company. So that company holds one asset, which is the painting. And then we file that company with the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, and we take that company public. So when investors buy shares in that company, and remember that company only holds one asset, which is the painting we bought. So when investors buy shares in the company, they are effectively buying shares in the painting. So that's how we fractionalize the art, and that's how we give investors the opportunity to invest in a portion, a fractional share of the art that we buy. Tell me about then what happens next. So do you guys manage that company for a fee? Is there a liquidation event? Who manages the company? And again, we're talking company in a, almost, almost in air quotes. It's a painting. It's obviously just an asset. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but but how, how, does, how does the the asset then, how is that managed and then potentially sold? What, what does that look like? We expect to hold each painting anywhere from three to 10 years. That's our expected time frame. For any of your listeners who might be familiar with private equity, it's actually quite similar to that. Whenever you make private equity investments, those are typically on a multi-year time frame. Um, so the expected hold is three to 10, average five to six. Um, and while we hold the art, it spends most of its time uh, at a free port in the US. That's a state-of-the-art storage facility. Uh, so it's climate controlled, secure, and basically everything that you would expect you should have to hold multi-million dollar works of art, that's where we have it. Um, and then ultimately, our we have a team in-house that basically has an enormous network globally of art collectors, intermediaries, basically anybody involved in the art market in any way, we have a connection to them. And as we grow our portfolio and we think about selling parts of the portfolio, we start to go to specific collectors, specific intermediaries, people we know who would have interest in the particular paintings we have. And we start to sort of talk through if they're interested in buying it, negotiating the sale price, so on and so forth. Once we sell the painting, then our investors get their distribution and profits. Right. And, and the companies, are, in this case, wound up, I suppose, and they get an opportunity to reinvest that capital in something else. I'm, I'm just curious, mate, this is just an investment nerdy question. Why not do it as, as a fund or, or a range of funds? Is, is there a particular reason why the LLC or the company structure, sorry, as we, we just call them uh, public companies or private companies, why does, the, why does the LLC structure, why is that preferable for us? Is there a particular reason? Is it, is it art related, investment related, just the way you guys choose to do it? Is it for your investors? What does that look like? 
It's uh, the thinking was honestly that that was the sort of simplest initial stepping stone to getting investors access to multi-million dollar works of art. We also had a pretty good feeling that investors would actually get some sort of sort of educational enjoyment about learning about the individual paintings and they could pick, you know, I like the uh, return profile of this painting versus that painting. Maybe I'll invest more in this, less in that. We kind of wanted to give investors a lot of those options. I mean, ultimately down the road, you know, we can explore having funds, things along those lines. But, you know, at, at the moment, we're still growing this uh, this part of the business. Yeah, no, cool. I was just, just curious as to the structure. And then tell me about, so uh, let me go back to just the, the masterworks involvement. I assume you guys retain some sort of voting rights over the companies. You make the decision about when you buy and sell. Do you take a, an annual fee, an upfront fee? Do you take a, a portion of the, the profit? How does, that, how does that work? Yeah, so I our, um, our management fee and performance fee are, uh, I think, quite in line with other alternative investments in the world. They're 1.5% and 20% of, of profits. Um, and, and so that's sort of on a painting by painting basis. Those, those fees are the same. Um, so that's kind of how, uh, how the fees work. It's interesting in Australia, there's a really relatively tiny, uh, art investment market, but it's, it's, it's almost, it, it, and maybe this is an Australian thing. We like our dividends. We like our income. And so the, as far as I'm aware, there may be others around there, but there's a small kind of tiny industry, almost a cottage industry where a, a business will, will effectively buy and then rent out those paintings to be hung on corporate walls and that kind of stuff. And that's that's the only uh, art-related investment I'm aware of here. Is that something that you guys would do at some point? I'm just interested in the structure of that. Obviously, you know, as you say, it feels more like a, a private equity style asset structure, both for you and for the um, for the investors. Is, is there is there a rental market? Is that something that's useful, interesting, worthwhile, or is it just not in your on your radar? That uh, that has existed. It it doesn't just exist in Australia. They they also have it in the U.S. They also have it in other places. Um, our sweet spot, honestly, and where we wanted to build the business was in a place related to the art market that nobody has ever done before, and that is on the equity side of the equation rather than on the debt side of the equation. Um, one of the things that I tell people, you know, if you want to know what are some of the uh, you know, considerations you need to make when investing in art. One of those would be art investing on the equity side does not generate cash flow. Now, it is a pure capital appreciation story. You know, the segment of the art market that we invest in, which is post-war and contemporary, that's been appreciating for decades now at around 14% annualized. Uh, our own track record in the almost th- three years that we've been doing this is 15.3% net annualized. So that's net of fees. That's a true return number. Um, And we've sold a whole bunch of paintings. The paintings that we've sold generally range from 20 to 40% net IRR. So the takeaway is um, it is not an income story, but we do believe that investors are being quite well compensated from the capital appreciation side of it. I'd, I'd happily give up the uh, the income for those sort of returns, absolutely, if they can be continued. Mate, um, I, I'm curious, just, just to think about the way you analysed the market. You talked about you went back and did the history work, uh, but then that's that's you know, index level at a, at a at a performance level. 
Uh, some people would say, and, and I'm curious, I'll, I'll get back to your kind of macro background in a minute, but I'm curious, some people would say that's the past, but but what does the future look like? And particularly on a painting by painting basis, the you know, we we all know that an index is the index, but within the index there are massive winners and losers. What 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 degree of or maybe a better question way to ask the question, how do you guys think about which paintings to acquire? Is is it is it straight out numbers game? Do you have uh, uh, curators or, or, or others to, to a different, you know, that, that sort of idea that are saying, well, that one, not that one in a in a good category? How does that asset selection work? So we very much do all of the things you just said. Uh, we bought. We are extraordinarily selective, otherwise known as picky, about what we buy. We buy about 2% of the artwork that we're shown. And the amount of artwork that we're shown, in case you're curious, is let's call it 15 to $20 billion worth of art that we've seen. We buy a very small fraction. It's about 2% of the art that we're shown. Um, the way that we ultimately make these decisions, and and this is, um, you know, this is somewhat of sometimes an eye opener for people who hear this. So, art itself is not something that most people ever think of as a very quantitatively oriented endeavor, right? People familiar with art usually think of it as, oh, those things that hang on the wall in a museum, maybe in a wealthy person's house. Like nobody thinks about it really quantitatively. But what we're doing, and I'm not kidding. We have a team of data scientists here who build models for individual artist markets to understand what drives artist markets to perform the way that they do. We have teams that build individual models for specific paintings that we're thinking of investing in. And we've also even started using artificial intelligence and imaging tools to start building some sort of synthetically oriented indices to help us better understand certain artist markets that we're interested in investing in. So we are taking an extraordinarily quantitatively driven approach on the, call it the filtering, the the initial filtering step to determine what part of the big universe of artists do we actually want to invest in. Then we hand it over to the qualitative art market experts and they then go to source the particular works that we're interested in buying. They use their global network to ultimately source all of those paintings. So, so it's a two-part process. Part one, very quantitatively driven. Part two, art market experts who are much more qualitatively driven. They'll negotiate to buy at a discount. Um, sort of, th- those are the individuals that would have the art market background that you would expect someone involved in the art market to have as a background. I'm curious, again, just as an investment wonky question, um, quant first, then qual, by definition, you know, you choose to narrow down a market and say to the experts, now from this pool, go and choose. Was there a, was there a, a decision made as to how to, how to, how to prioritise the order of that? Was it simply a matter of the numbers are the numbers, so it's just easier? Or is it a case of, no, we want to make sure the experts are only choosing from things we think have a higher probability of success to remove some of the human error but i guess also potentially human upside um you could have done a different way i've said to people like you know someone your expert says i think this painting and, and then you say well it doesn't fit the matrix or i like this category and you say well it doesn't work is, is that just literally just uh, you know the way it works or is there a specific reason for going quant first so um the way that i would describe it is i guess i mean i skipped over this part before the quantitative element there are sort of what i would describe as minimum characteristics that anything we would consider first needs to have before we then apply the quantitative lens those minimum characteristics are along the lines of we will only invest in artists who have sort of consistent transaction volume at 
auction oh, year yeah, after year. Course. So it's right, one of right, these right. things where you can imagine if you don't apply that initial lens, you might mm -hmm. use your quantitative <laughs> methods and find an artist that you should be investing in that nobody has ever heard of, whose works have never sold at auction. And you might think, okay, quantitatively, this should be a really good opportunity. But then the mm -hmm. obvious question comes up, which is, at some point, I will need to sell this painting. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. I need to make sure that I have somebody who will buy the painting. Mm -hmm. So our initial screen is they've got to be sort of these blue chip recognized artists in the art market. They have to have consistent track records of selling paintings at auction every year. And once they meet those minimum criteria, then we okay. can start applying those quantitative lenses to determine what areas we think we should invest in. That's that's super cool. Let me let me ask you a little bit about um, something that is is art or not, depending on your perspective, and is investable or not, depending on your perspective. Uh, the art market is being uh, challenged, or or maybe maybe not, by non fungible tokens or NFTs. The the, the infamous Board Eight Ape Yacht Club uh, NFTs that sold for millions and then apparently didn't anymore, uh, but they're still kind of around. They're still kind of there. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting it's anyway. Uh, comparable, but I would be curious as to your thought, given you're in this space specifically, given you're in a space where, you know, art is, it's interesting, I was going to say art is subjective, you've done a whole lot of work to remove some subjectivity from the from the investment part of it, right, so that, that's, and that's where Masterworks comes in, you know, in terms of the value you guys create, but I am curious as to how you think about um, the, the, the parallels, the opportunities, the risks, the challenges, whatever it is, from digital art or from other art forms that at some point are competing, at least for attention and maybe for money, that might be spent yeah. on physical art. Yeah, I mean, for, for the last few years, we've actually been uh, on record as quite skeptical of NFTs. And for a few years, in a lot of ways, that fell on deaf ears until this year came about and NFTs kind of broadly plummeted in value. And so the, the irony is we've had a lot of NFT former or even current NFT owners, frankly, who have since discovered Masterworks and realized <laughs> maybe, maybe this is something I should have considered. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you from an investment perspective why I mm -hmm. think investing in real tangible blue chip art is more attractive than digital art. And the reason is primarily driven by the supply side of the equation. So with digital art, it can ultimately be replicated. Um, there's been a lot of sort of fraud in that area as well. You can, you know, you can, you can make the argument that, oh, that's sort of part of the kind of process that any industry has to go through as it matures. That is totally possible. I get it. But there is an element of ultimately anything in the digi digital realm can be replicated and, and the supply can grow. In the art market, the art market actually has probably the most unique supply dynamic that I've seen in any other asset class. So I'll give you an example. Let, let's take oil for that matter. Oil is a perfect example. The best way to increase the production of oil would be for oil prices to go up significantly. If they go up significantly for a long time, oil drilling companies will drill more oil. It is very simple. However, in the art market, this is the joke I often like to make, if the, if the price of Picasso's paintings goes up enormously, <laughs> Picasso is not painting any more paintings. And on top of that, this, is, this yeah. second part, actually, a lot of people are, who are less familiar with the art market, they don't realize this, which is every year there's a certain number of paintings 
by big name artists that go into museums or permanent collections. When that happens, those paintings will never come out, which means that year after year, the supply of actual art in the market is slowly declining. And there are not a lot of other asset classes where you have that type of a supply dr uh, driven story. I like that. I have to ask you the uh, impolite question. Um, are dead artists better than live artists when it comes to investing? Marginally. Um, Only not, marginally? Wow. Well, I would have assumed. I'll tell you why I say marginally. Um, what, what, what typically happens is over a long period of time, the dead art, if the, if the artist has been dead for a very long period of time, their, the performance of their market will reach somewhat of a steady state in a way. But where, where you will see the most attractive performance, so to speak, is at the front end. So shortly after an artist dies, because it's one of those things where it's a pivotal event in that artist market. As soon as the artist passes away, news will come out that the artist passed away. Everyone in the art market all of a sudden begins to reevaluate that artist's works. They start to focus it. And you kind of get yeah. this initial bump. And, and honestly, there's, um, uh, there's a famous artist who actually passed away a few days ago, Pierre Soulage. Um, we've, we've owned several Pierre Soulage paintings. Um, but I, I will tell you this, and, and this always kind of, um, I find this so surprising and incredible that artists seem to live very very long lives there are there are <laughs> so it. many artists who are actually over a hundred years old that I wow think okay i think it's like you you should be able to make a statistically significant <laughs> argument that if you become an artist you are going yeah. to live longer than anybody else But I've got to, I've got to pivot quickly to to you, you have a background as a market strategist as a macro strategist, um, both for the art market itself, but even for I'll, call, I'll say the investment markets plural, and it can be as big or as small as we want to go with. Um, how where are we? You know, end of twenty twenty two as we're recording this, we're recording this on the uh, Friday the twenty eighth of October um, Australian time. It's the twenty seventh in the US. Um, just a date stamp for people who are watching this later. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff going on, mate. We know about inflation, we know about interest rates, we know about the potential for a slowing economy. Although I did say the US economy grew at two and a half percent, which is not a bad result given people were talking recession. Um, I'm just curious when when you when you lift your head up from the from the art spreadsheets and, and maybe the, the paintings themselves and you look around, where, how how do you how do you perceive uh, the market that we're in right now? Yeah, I mean, it, look in general, it's it's it would be challenging enough if it were just equities that were experiencing a tough environment. But but the challenge mm. this year has been that both equities and bonds have been experiencing a challenging environment. The reason why that's mm. so hard is because. Yeah. Most investors, they diversify their stock portfolio with bonds precisely because right, right. if one of them goes down, the other one should go up. This year has kind of disproven that, uh, mm -hmm. basically showing that, yes, both of those major asset classes can go down. Um, and honestly, the inflationary environment only makes things even worse because now your returns, which even aside from inflation are negative, now you add the real return on top of that and you're even more underwater. Um, so the market is undoubtedly a challenging one. Uh, whether inflation is going to persist at these levels indefinitely, that's really anybody's call. I mean, my personal take is I, I find it kind of interesting that, you know, initially the Fed in the U.S., the Fed was basically saying that inflation was not going to be a problem. It was not going to be a problem. 
And then all of a sudden it became a problem. <laughs> then it started we had the same raise, here for the record. So it's, it started to raise rates. And, and I feel like there might be some sort of irony in the end to this whole story in the sense that at the point where the Fed starts tackling the problem that they said that was never going to happen, <laughs> that problem might already begin rectifying itself. So, so it's, it almost becomes like a chasing your tail type of thing. Um, whether that ends up happening, I don't know. But the one thing I can tell you that, that has been interesting for a lot of investors, for us specifically, is that the art market has actually done extraordinarily well in past inflationary environments. Um, if you ask any investor, what should you invest in if there's inflation, the investors will probably tell you some combination of gold, oil, real estate. That That's probably the go-to answer. And yet, the art market has actually performed extraordinarily well in inflationary environments. It's outperformed stocks. It's outperformed real estate. It, it is at least worth considering if inflation is something that you're worried about for your portfolio. I guess we should be, right? Almost by definition. It, I, I, um, we, we had it one step worse than yours. Not only did our, uh, not only did the Fed say, there's probably not a problem, there's probably not a problem, oops, there's a problem. Uh, the Australian uh, Federal Reserve Bank saw the US do that and said, it's probably not a problem. Okay, maybe it's a problem for them, but it won't be a problem for us. Oops, it's a problem. So we actually had three or four months of actual notice of watching your inflation rate go up. And we said, no, it's probably just an American problem, which I, I think was, uh, uh, <laughs> it was courageous as a decision to believe that inflation would have been quarantined in a single, very large, very, very globalized country. Uh, but that's what they did here. And so we are, we are similarly chasing our tails in the same way that, uh, that, that the, the Fed is. And as you say, maybe high prices are, are the solution to high prices in themselves anyway, uh, which, would be, which would be something. You're a student of history, though. I, I, I've, I've told people regularly, um, economic history, I reckon, for most people is about five years long. We just kind of forget the lessons really quickly. But you will be a, a student, I'm sure, of, of the early 1980s recession and Volcker's decision to, to put up rates, not only put them up and put them up high, and put, I, think it's, I think it's a greedy caused a recession in doing so, but then kept putting up rates during the recession. Now, that was successful. Causation and correlation can be debated from here till kingdom come. But, um, the, you know, it, it is true that at the end of that recession, there was low inflation for 40 odd years. Is that the strategy they should be pursuing? Is that the strategy they will be pursuing, do you think, the Fed? I don't think that that's the strategy they're going to pursue. And most of the reason why is because the global economy today is magnitudes more indebted than it was several decades ago. And it's one of those things where, you know, I often, when I try to convey anything about the economy, I often bring it down to the individual level because I find it so much more easy to grasp that way. And, and think of it this way. If you are a person who has no debt whatsoever, and all of a sudden interest rates move higher, there's really nothing about that that should cause you concern because you don't have debt in the first place. So if you apply that sort of thinking on a big picture level for the global economy and you realize that today the global economy is magnitudes more in debt than it was several decades ago, what that basically means is central banks will be much more prone to cause a downturn significantly worse than what we would have experienced several decades ago. So ultimately they will probably raise rates now again you know they might do that up until the point that they realize that inflation might even be coming down on its own before they even get as high as they want but i don't think their terminal level is going to be anything like what it was uh, several decades ago they will raise rates 
Asset prices will probably react as a result, but I don't think their end goal is anything along the lines of what it was in the 80s because the consequences would be significantly worse. Yeah, I like that. Mate, let me let me go back to art then in that context. Like any self-respecting uh, representative of a, of a business that deals in a particular asset class, you're probably going to tell me that art's going to be fine. Maybe you won't, but that's okay either way. Um, maybe I'll ask the question differently. What has the experience of the art market been, given all the work you've done, all the data you've poured through, uh, during different types of markets? Obviously, great long-term annualized returns. Is it more volatile, less volatile? Are there more buyers, fewer, you know, fewer buyers? How, how does the art market itself operate in these sort of times? Yeah. So um, the art market, I so to keep it simple, I often tell people if you want to understand the performance of the art market, it is basically the similar to the performance of private equity, except that the art market is uncorrelated to any major asset class. Now, I want to be very specific what I mean about this, because there are many investment managers around the world who have used this phrase low correlation they use it so much that investors investors basically have become immune to it like they don't even care they don't even listen and they think yes yes i'm sure you're low correlated however the thing about the art market is that it exhibits the low correlation profile that every other investment manager would love for their own asset class to exhibit and here's what i mean no matter what asset class you measure arts correlation to that correlation is consistently close to zero and i'll tell you specifically it's not just the correlation to stocks it's not just the correlation to bonds not just commodities not just hedge funds not just real estate not just venture capital i can go all the way down the list the correlation of art to anything is consistently close to zero in fact in years when the equity market was negative, in those years, the art market was positive. We even looked at this for specific quarters. We looked at negative quarters for equities, negative quarters for private equity, negative quarters for US bonds. It does not matter. When major asset classes are negative, the art market has generated positive returns. And just to be really, really clear here, you're not saying negatively correlated, you're saying just completely, well, not completely, but essentially uncorrelated. That is, you know, don't expect, you know, it's like the bonds equity conversation we had before was, you know, bonds tend to, to be negatively correlated. Uh, this is literally just uncorrelated altogether. Literally uncorrelated. There, there will be, there are some few examples when, um, when the art market was down, when equities were down. I believe that happened in one calendar year about 20 years ago. I, I can't recall which year. Um, the art market was actually down, I think, maybe mid, mid single digits when equities were down double digits. Um, but other than that, I mean, for the for the vast majority of instances when equities are down, the art market is up. I mean, you, look, it's one of those things. If anybody were to tell you that they have a solution that is perfect in every environment, that's when you should that that's when you get skeptical. So I will not tell you that it does well in every single environment, but I will tell you that most of the time it behaves like an uncorrelated asset class. And what I like too, mate, is you, as you say, you, you're, you're holding period three to 10, often five to six years anyway. So it's, al it's almost, I mean, it's almost the perfect way to think about markets because you're not trying to pick quarters or even years. You're not worried about individual movements. It's not, never comfortable. Uh, but if you're buying something with a, with a hope to be selling at half a decade or more later, maybe earlier if you get a good price, but uh, that, that's in and of itself is kind of the, uh, the sort of thing you're looking for with this sort of investment, as you say, which is about medium term, long term capital appreciation, not trying to, you know, pick the the, pick the highs and lows and the, and the data points that suit in, in the short term. Yep.
that's exactly right. Alan, you've been very, very uh, generous with your time. I want to finish off with our favourite questions, if, you, if you'd indulge me. Uh, these are the ones that we ask all of our guests and our listeners love hearing the answers to. So, mates, uh, I, I, I'm fascinated whether the answer is going to be art or not. But my first question, what are you reading, watching, streaming, listening to at the moment? I am watching uh, The Money Heist, which is it's on Netflix. It is a Spanish show uh, with subtitles. Um, and it is basically a story of how a group of extremely sophisticated thieves orchestrate a bank heist. And it is the Bank of Spain and multiple seasons. This show, actually, it's funny, this show was very popular during COVID, but I never knew about it during COVID. So people were talking about it. Oh, yeah, that show during COVID, it was amazing. Everybody all over the world was glued to it. And I was like, wait a minute, I never watched it. <laughs> so I've started watching it and it it hooks you in and, and you simply cannot stop watching. Super cool. The Money Heist. I'll check that out. Thank you. Uh, I assume, again, you spend a lot of time thinking about art trends. But other than that, uh, what trends are you watching around the world? It can be about your role or business in general, the economy, society. Just, just what, what kind of is fascinating you? What's got your, what's got your attention trend-wise? I think for me, the most interesting trend has been that alternative investments seem to be picking up steam in terms of their acceptance. And, and that is, it's somewhat surprising because institutional investors have been investing in alternative investments for several decades and I would have thought, in all honesty, that the adoption for investors more broadly than just institutions, I would have thought that adoption would actually happen sooner. I did not expect it would take several decades. But I think that this year, specifically with both stock and bond markets down, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you can ignore something for a while, ignore it for a while. And then all of a sudden it really hits home for you why you might not want to ignore it and then you stop yeah, right. ignoring it. So I, I, I think that's <laughs> yeah. that's kind of what's happening with alternative investments. And of course, we're, we're proud that art being one of those alternative investments, we can bring that to the table. Very, very cool. What advice would you give someone who was interested in a job in your industry, whether it's art specifically, investment generally? If you had a, a college grad come to you and say, Alan, what do I do now? What, what do I need to know? Where should I, where should I go? What advice would you give them? Yep. The, the absolute best advice I could give anyone is to start developing your network and your mentors as early as humanly possible. Oh, that's a cool answer. Because yep. especially when you're in financial services, the one thing you learn as you move along in your career is the network that you've built is ultimately going to have a very strong impact on where you end up. And it's one, you know, th this is an investment-oriented podcast, so I might as well say this. The same yeah, way <laughs> that returns compound on returns, the same thing applies for building a network. You start early, you start compounding that network, and ultimately down the line, you will end up with a very sizable network that can help you throughout your career. And I cannot emphasize enough how critical it is to start doing that early rather than late. I love that, man. I think it's uh, the first time someone's mentioned that on this podcast. I'll ask you a quick follow-up question. What is yeah. the secret to building a, 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 not just a big network, but a good network? Uh, well, a lot of it would be, you know, if you do enough reading, you watch the news, you kind of immerse yourself. And by the way, this is not just investment-oriented. You mm -hmm. have to know who the main players are in whatever area you're thinking of 
building a network. Now, right. you can't assume that you're going to have access to those big players off the bat because, let's be honest, they probably have a million things they're doing at every <laughs> point in time. However, right. what you can do, you can look for people that who might be willing to talk to you at the institution that those big players work. You build right. a network with those individuals. Then every time you meet one of them, and this, by the way, this is a follow-on to my prior advice, Every person you meet and start building a network with, you ask them for at least one other individual who they might recommend that you could also talk to to learn more about what they are doing. And you ask that person who's another one you could, and you literally build your network piece by piece with every person you talk to one after the next. That is sensational advice. I'm going to finish with my last question, my favorite question. I'm an optimist by nature. Yeah. Alan, are you an optimist? And if you are, what are you optimistic about? Well, I'm definitely optimistic that the challenges we're seeing right now in markets are not going to last forever. It is, it's one of those things where <laughs> the, the more years of investment experience you have under your belt, you realize that this too will pass. And, you know, it's one of those things where even during that, look, global financial crisis, when we had the global financial crisis, everyone at that time thought, this is it. The world is coming to an end. It's all over. And yet, somehow we managed to make it through the global financial crisis. So <laughs> exactly. I think it's always important to remember that in the moment, it might feel painful, scary, all of those things. But just like everything else previously, this too will pass. Humans are skilled. Their, in, their ingenuity is about as good as anything could be. We will make it through is the biggest takeaway I could give. And that is a spectacular way to finish our conversation. I've been speaking with Alan Sukolitsky, the Chief Investment Officer of Masterworks. Alan, thank you for joining The Good Oil. Thank you. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.